Brothers and sisters, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, that's um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, that's on page 952 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Again, 1 Corinthians 18 through 31. As I mentioned, I'm really excited about 1 Corinthians. I, I do think that there is no other letter that's more appropriate for the church. And I'm not just saying that because that's what pastors are supposed to do. That's what preachers are supposed to do by, by speaking things as though it's the most important verse or the most important book. So you better pay attention. But I really do think that 1 Corinthians is one of the most appropriate letters for us as a church in, in the West and in North America because there are tons of divisions within the church of Jesus Christ. And my love for ecumenism, that is my love for the universal church, the church, whether it be called Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian, that love for the church comes from looking at a letter like this and from considering Jesus' high priestly prayer that, that we all be one. Because when we are one, when we are unified, then people will look at that, our love for one another... And they won't just say, wow, they, they really get along well. No, no. the whole purpose of our unity is so that people will look at that love and say, wow, this must be real. <laughs> that Jews and Gentiles, poor and rich, those who love one football team and despise another football team, that they actually can come together and they can love one another. Wow, there must be something greater than what I see here. In that Jesus said, when they see your love for one another, they'll, they'll know that the Father has sent me. And so I am at pains as we look at these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians during the season of Epiphany, that we'd be struck to the heart because it's really easy to look at the book of Acts and say, wow, look at all that power. I want that kind of Holy Spirit power. I want, I want that kind of relationship that we see in the book of Acts. But we can't divorce the book of Acts from the book of 1 Corinthians because that's really where the rubber hits the road when you've got people that are fighting about some of the most insignificant things, but then also some really hairy and ugly sinful things too. See, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at thanking God for sinners. In fact, that was the name of the sermon. Thank God for sinners because you and I are sinners. You and I have difficulties and difficult people in our lives. And in fact, we are difficult and we are difficult people in other people's lives, aren't we? If we're honest. And then we looked at last week that we are to agree to agree, that we are to take those little quibbles, is that a word, quibbles, squibbles, squabbles, these, these, these things that, that get us all up in arms, and we're supposed to pursue each other. We're supposed to say, okay, yeah, we just agree to disagree, you know, quesera, sera, whatever. And what we saw in first, last week in 1 Corinthians was that, no, 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 when, when you see those disagreements, that could actually be a moment for God to sharpen you. To rub you the wrong way so that you become more like your maker. And so this week, I think it's just a beautiful progression because we see those divisions that are throughout the church. And then what we see here is Paul giving us an admonition of how in the world do we do that? How do we agree to, to agree? How do we thank God for sinners? And this really is the foundation for this passage of chapter 1. But I would argue that this passage that we're getting ready to look at is the argument for the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. That if you don't get 
these verses right, then you won't understand what he talks about when he comes to spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. You won't understand what he's talking about when he gets to any other issues that come up in 1 Corinthians. So you have to get this part right, and I think this serves as the foundation of what comes before and then what comes after for the next several chapters, in fact, for the rest. And so we know that there's a flurry of divisions. You see divisions all throughout the churches, I've already alluded to. But you see, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Jesus. And we have that same issue in the Western church where we say, well, I follow, I follow. You know, that, that's, that's what happens a lot of times when we spend too much time looking at ourselves. And so what do I mean by that? What, what do I think that one of the primary issues is, is that, well... Let me get by, by way of illustration. Have you ever um, looked in a mirror for longer than just a glance to see if your hair was okay? I mean, have you ever stood in front of a mirror and just kind of looked at it and just stared? If you have, I'm talking about for minutes. I want to encourage you to do it because I think what will happen, at least this is, I'm going to be, again, vulnerable with you all. But when, when I do that, just stand and look in a mirror, you're like, huh, I never noticed that. Never noticed that mole right there. Never noticed that little pudge right there. I never noticed, hmm, that ear is a little lower than that ear. My, my hairline is receding quite a bit, you know? And if you stare long enough into the mirror, you're going to find something wrong with yourself. You're going to find something that you want to change. And I would argue that in the church, that's what happens a lot of times, is that we spend way too much time just looking at each other and meditating on each other's imperfections, and we start to say, well, they're kind of annoying the way they laugh. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Why do they laugh like that? You know, all these things, like we start picking things out, right? Like, like Jesse, his laugh right there. That was <laughs> wonderful. Right? Jesse gets to be my, my whipping boy sometimes. I appreciate that, Jesse. And he's thinking how annoying it is that Matt keeps picking on me. In the middle of a sermon. And so I think that's what's wrong is that the church in Corinth is starting to look at each other a little too long. They're starting to forget that what God had called them to do as a as a picture of what God had already done for them in Christ. And, and so they were spending so much time just looking at each other and saying, man, I can't believe that he would listen to that guy. <laughs> I can't believe that he'd listen to that preacher or listen to that music. And that's what happens in our own lives, is that you have these divisions about some of the most inconsequential things. And we forget that we were called to unity, but it's not just some kind of glossed over unity. When the Bible talks about unity as a church, it's not just saying, hey man, just kind of forget all your differences. No, it actually tells you to press into those differences. Because we serve the creator of all of these people, all of these differences. And when we get into that space, magic happens. I promise you that. I long for that in our church, and I long for that in the church in Greenville, is that there would be a place where everybody doesn't just look and talk and act the same, but that people act very different from each other, and they talk very different, and they have one overarching story, one hero of their lives, namely Jesus Christ. See, we forget because we stare, and we think that these differences outshine the one thing that has called us to unity. And that's what we're going to see here. We begin to pay more attention to the things that make us different. when We forget the very reason that God called us in the first place. And so, there are two issues 
in Corinth, in Corinth and in this first in this letter that Paul writes here. There are two issues that are dividing the church. There's the issue of power and the issue of knowledge or wisdom. All right, you see that throughout here there were there were people that were arguing that I'm more spirit filled than that person because I have this gift over that person's gift. And then you have people who who say, well, I'm more doctrinally sound because I, I follow this doctrine. I can't believe that they would believe that. <laughs> and so you have within Corinth this fighting over who's got the power and who's got the knowledge. Who is spirit-filled and who is doctrinally sound. Those are the two issues. Does this sound very familiar? Does it sound familiar between those who are the spirit-filled believers and those who are the doctrinally sound people? Sounds very similar to a lot of the issues that we have in the church today. And we haven't traveled too far from Corinth. And so Paul gives us the remedy for this. He gives us the remedy in these next 13 verses. And what we have to do is we have to redefine what is good and true and beautiful from the way the world defines those things. We have to redefine, and then we also have to remind ourselves of how God has actually worked in time and space to save us, to make us a part of this great cosmic story that he's called us into. And so the main point of this passage, of of these verses here, is that God chooses the foolish and the weak so that we might glorify him. God chooses... God chooses the foolish and the weak so that we might glorify Him. That's the main point of this passage. And our passage is divided nicely into two ideas. you got an idea in verses 18 through 25, and then you have an explanation of that idea in verses 26 through 31. So you have an idea, and then you have an explanation. And so that's going to be forming our two points for today's message. The idea... That God redefines what is good and true and beautiful. And then the explanation of how God actually has reminded us of what he's done in Christ Jesus. So let's just look at the first, these, our first section of 18 through 25. If you would follow along with me, I'll just read that first section. And then we'll kind of tease out what all that means. <clears throat> Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ. The power of God. And the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God. Is wiser than men. And the weakness of God. Is stronger than men. So we see clearly here 
At the very beginning, in verse 18, is falling off the heels of, obviously, verse 17, where, where Paul says, I, didn't, I just came to preach. Not in eloquent wisdom, which we'll get into chapter 2 next week, teasing out what he's talking about there. He says, I didn't, I didn't preach with eloquent wisdom but I, because I didn't want the cross to be emptied of its power. For, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And so you see this, this clear distinction, this dichotomy that Paul is making, that there are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. And how you fall into those two camps, that there's no like, hey, I'm, I'm in the process of not perishing. He's saying, no, you're either perishing or you're being saved. And so Paul makes this dividing mark, these two camps of those who have been adopted by God and those who are left outside the camp. And it's really key here, and, and this word folly keeps coming up, doesn't it? See, the, the city of Corinth, as we looked at, was kind of a hodgepodge of New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all wrapped up into one thing. And it was a really affluent city, and it was just down the street from Athens. And in Athens, they would spend hours and hours debating back and forth. And you can see Paul doing that in the Oropagus, right, where he's in Athens, and they just love nothing more than to talk about the latest ideas well, that's what happened in Corinth, too. They would hear about these things in Athens, kind of like how, how we in Greenville get the fashion uh, from New York City about five, seven, ten years later. That's, that's what's going on here, is that they're getting all of this philosophy from Athens, and they're like, hey, look, did you hear about this? Oh, I heard about this. Did you hear about this? So they're, they're doing all this stuff, and they're saying, well, what is wisdom? What is true Sophia? There's wisdom that they're after. And Paul says that the word of the cross, his message is folly to those who are perishing. He literally is saying the logic of the cross is moronic. That's where we get the word moron is from this word folly. And this word word is logos is where we get the word logic. So, so as, as a world that is perishing looks at what you and I are preaching about a, a man dying on a cross to save you and to save others from their sin, it just doesn't compute. It sounds stupid. It sounds moronic. He said, what we're saying is not wisdom in this world. What we're saying is way outside the the bounds of what's acceptable in Corinth. As one historian put from, this is a guy who wrote in the year 200 about Christians. Hear what he says. He says, about Christians, he writes this, the poor wretches... They have convinced themselves first and foremost that they are going to be immortal and live for all time. Therefore, they despise death and even willingly go to prison. Furthermore, their first lawgiver, Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers, denying the Greek gods, and they worship their crucified philosopher himself and live under his laws. And then around that same time, you know, Christians were mocked. There's this one of the first depictions of Jesus is not this picture that you see uh, typically in a, in a Bible with Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes or anything. The first depiction of Jesus is of a man. Is, 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 this was carved in a cave of a man on a cross with a donkey head, and as a guy named Alexamandros worships his god. And so, to the Corinthians, to those who were perishing, the message of the cross looked like we worshipped an ass. Looked like we worshipped just someone who was ridiculous and worthy to be mocked. And that doesn't sound too much different than today's age. I don't know if you've heard of the illustrious 
militant atheist named Richard Dawkins or not. Um, But he famously said this. He said, you know, the higher one's educational level, the less likely they are to be religious. And he cited a study that polled academic elites and found that only 7% of the the cream of the crop, as he called them, the most elite intelligentsia, only 7% believe in God. So you must be an idiot if you believe that even God exists. There is no such thing as a personal God. And then he goes on to say this, and it reminds me of what this historian back in 200 200 said. He says, he told the people to do this at at a huge rally not too long ago. He says, mock Christians. Ridicule them in public. They need to be ridiculed with contempt because they are foolish. To which the crowd cheered in approval. So my friends, we are not that far off. That When you go outside these doors and you try to talk to somebody, what you're saying is foolishness, is moronic. Have you ever reckoned with that? (laughs) Have you ever reckoned with the fact that our message is crazy? It's crazy talk. If you really sit down and think about it, you're like, wow, that is wild. And if God didn't open up our eyes, but I'm getting ahead of myself, if God didn't open up our eyes, we would continue to think that it's moronic. So let's, let's go on to verse 19 before I do get ahead of myself, because he says this. Paul, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14, and he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Those who think that they know, I am going to demolish. And so this is during the time in Isaiah when the Assyrians are coming from the north. They had just destroyed the northern tribes of Israel and they were coming and they were knocking on the door of Judah. And they're like, hey, we're coming and we're going to take you over. And so all of the people of Judah were like, hey, we've got to get our military up and going. And maybe we need to run to Egypt. Maybe we need to seek an alliance with Egypt. That makes sense. Let's do that. And so they were trying to put off this exile by looking to military power. To looking towards trying to figure out a solution. And God says, I'm going to take all of your wisdom and I'm going to smash it against the rocks. I'm going to take what you think is discerning and I'm going to make you look foolish. Right? Because this is what uh, Isaiah later on uh, writes. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen, because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. When God was saying all along in Isaiah, he said, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. There is a sharp dichotomy of those who trust in themselves, in their own strength, and their own wisdom. And then there are those who are called by God, who are saved by God, who throw themselves on the mercy of God. Say, it doesn't make sense. It seems a little moronic, but I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of God and trust Him completely to give me mercy. To give me grace. Continuing to get ahead of myself. So I'm going to keep moving here. Right? Because the the issue in Corinth, again, is what? Knowledge and power. Knowledge and power. And you and I, if we're not careful, can quickly put our confidence in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own knowledge, in our own wisdom. 
That doesn't make sense to me that I should draw near to those who are downcast. What are they? What, what's in it for me exactly? That's the point. That's the point because what has God done for us in Jesus? What has He done for us in Jesus? And so we are to reflect that. See, we can quickly put our confidence in not only what we know, but who we know. And whether people know us or not. When all the while, Jesus is calling you and me to be content with the quiet places. The quiet places of obedience. Rather than being on the street corner and showing everybody what we know and how awesome we are. God's calling us to say, throw yourselves don't exalt yourself over me, because I will show mercy to the humble one. I will show mercy and grace to the one who says, I ain't got it all together. My horse has got a limp leg. My chariot wheels are all gummed up in the mud. When we come to that place, that's when the Lord says, I'll, I'll come and redeem you now. I'll, I'll flex my mighty arm of strength to redeem the one who looks at his estate and says, I need. Save me, O God. The one who doesn't say, just give me a minute, just give me a minute. I'll get my act together and then, God, then I'll I'll, I'll listen. He says, no, no, no. In the midst of your mess, call out to the Lord because he's gracious and merciful. Because you and I can, or think we can do a good job of painting ourselves in in a good light. We polish up a little bit. We, We try to just post our highlights of our lives and The Lord knows, the Lord knows the yell, the the fight that just happened right before that post on Instagram or Facebook. The Lord knows your struggles at night when no one's watching. The Lord knows that you fear that you will be found out for a fraud. The Lord knows that even though you puff out your chest, that you are hollow inside. Look at verse 22. Paul goes on to say, He says this in verse 22. For Jews demand signs, a.k.a. they demand power. This this idea that the Jews wanted. What did they say to Jesus? Oh, show us more signs, Jesus. Show us more signs that you're from the Father. And what Jesus says is, yeah, you'll you'll get a sign. When the Son of Man dies and he raises again, that'll be the sign. The sign of Jonah, right? He says that. So Jews demand signs of power, of might. And Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, but, here's that dichotomy that Paul talks about, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He doesn't doesn't try to gloss it over. He says, I know that this is folly to you Gentiles, and I know that this seems weak to you Jews, but we preach what? Christ crucified. We're not trying to gloss over the fact that our king was killed. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, that's the beautiful thing here, right? Is that the Lord redeems Jews and Greeks. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews and the Greeks of all people. And he welcomes all people into his kingdom. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. One of the things that I want to I want to note in here, when, when Paul talks about foolishness, he is not talking about ignorance. 
two different things. He's not talking about, okay, I don't really understand everything, but I'm just going to take a blind leap. I'm just going to believe it. I, I don't get it, but I'm going to believe it. He's not talking about ignorance. That's dangerous. You say, oh, I, don't, I don't know, but I'm just going to believe this. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about faith that has evidences. What does he do later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He says, we know that Jesus was crucified. He was raised from the, get, the dead and he appeared to 500 people. Our faith isn't one that we just kind of, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll believe that. No, 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 our faith is built upon reason and evidence. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying when it's all measured in the balance of the world, <laughs> the logic, the reason, the evidences, they don't make sense. In fact, They aren't even to be considered when it comes to the world, to those who are perishing. In fact, I find a lot of confidence, and I would encourage you, that when you're flagging in your faith, that you realize that our faith is not just something that was made up by 12 guys or 11. It wasn't just made up on the spot, but there were were many, many people. There was evidences, there was reason, there's logic. I mean... Look at the entire letter. That's what Paul does. That's what Paul does throughout all of his letters. He's saying, okay, Jesus has done this, therefore do this. That's a logical argument. But the world considers it folly. And to be very honest, I I like to be revered by the world. And if you're a little bit like me, you might find that nice too, that you don't want to be thought of as a weirdo when you go to the office tomorrow. You don't be like, hey... I believe this. You know people are going to laugh at you. But see, what we see here is that we just need to call it like it is. That you and I believe in a crucified king who was beaten to a pulp, who was hung naked on on a cross. One that even while he was on the cross forgave, which only weak people do, right? Only weak people say forgive them. What does the Lord do? He actually redefines what is weak. He redefines what is foolishness, doesn't he? Look at verse 25. How does he do that? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so the one who was naked and hung on a tree, the one who forgave the ones who were his enemies, is seen as the strong man. He's seen as the wise one. Right? So the Lord is at work to redefine foolishness and weakness. Because the Corinthians had it backwards. You and I have it backwards. We think that if we can flex our arm and show how we're right, that shows that we are worthy to be listened to. And here Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm going I'm to brag about getting beaten up. <laughs> I'm going to brag about my weakness because when I am weak, what happens? The Lord is seen to be my stronghold. Right? That's what we, that's what we read about in the scriptures just not, too, not, not just a few moments ago. That the one who puts his strength in the Lord is truly strong. Because if you and I were in an arm wrestling match, one of us will win, but neither one of us can beat God in his strength. If you and I were to argue and debate, one of us will win, but neither one of us is smart enough to outwit God. So then we come to our second point. So not only does God remind us, I'm sorry, he not only redefines the foolish and the weak, but God reminds us that he chooses 
the foolish and the weak. God reminds us that he chooses the foolish and the weak. That's our second point. Let's look at, read uh, verses 26 to 31. How does he remind us? This is the explanation of everything that he said prior to. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, but not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord so Paul tells us to consider our own paths to God he reminds us you all weren't strong enough to save yourself you all weren't wise enough to put one and one together Remember that mirror that I talked about? Sometimes it's good to look in a mirror. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's good to actually walk by and just kind of glance in it and then keep walking on, you know, get whatever's on your face from breakfast off. It's good to glance. And that's what Paul tells us to do. Consider your calling. Consider how you were saved. And I, I just want you to take a few seconds. I'm going to have some quietness here. Just consider how you came to know the Lord. How did you come to know God? Did you put one and one together? I know I didn't. I know I wanted to do things on my own. I know that I thought I was pretty hot stuff because I was a pretty good kid. The Lord says, you, you don't even know the half of it. And it wasn't until I understood that my strength was weakness. That everything that I tried to do turned in on itself. Every attempt I had to make sure that people respected me showed itself to be weak and foolish. See, God, God looks at all that. God, God stares at your weakness. He sees everything that you don't even yet see. And what does He do? He doesn't just look at you and scoff. No, the Lord looks at that hot mess that you are. God looks at all of your attempts at self-justification and self-salvation. He looks at your weak, stubby arms that can't do what you think you can do and your puffed out chest that's really, really hollow inside. All your attempts to be shown to be okay and to have your stuff together. The Lord looks at that hot mess and what does he do, friends? And just so you make sure that you understand it, look at verses 27 to 28. What does God do? God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. That's the hope of our message. In order for people to understand the folly and the foolishness, they have to come to the end of themselves First, they have to what? Repent and believe. 
They have to re- look at all of their attempts and say it's not enough. I could never save myself. I could not have chosen God because I was not looking for God. I could not have been the righteousness that God requires. Because even in my attempts to be righteous, I've got a little bit of self-righteousness. A little bit of pride. Look at what I did. So you and I have to come to an end of ourselves. Even now, even if you've called yourself a Christian, every single day is an opportunity for you to lay it down. To say, I don't have it together. And when you do that, friends, there's freedom that comes. There's joy that comes when you say, I messed up. Everybody knows that you messed up. What freedom there is is when we confess, when we agree with God that I have messed up, I have rebelled, I have have tried to make myself look in a better light than I can. But God, in his blazing light, shines the light on you and says, oh, really? Did did you notice that? (laughs) Did, Did you notice that? But what about that? And instead of condemning us, the Lord looks at you in all your frailty and in all of your foolishness, and he says, mine. He doesn't look at you and turn a shoulder. He says, if you'll, if you'll come to the end of yourselves, if you'll say, I don't have it together, that's when the Lord will work on your behalf, not by running to Egypt, not saying, well, let me get to, oh, hold on a second, I'll be right back. The Lord says, no, 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 right now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the moment when you can have the freedom in Jesus. When you confess that you don't have it together. That you don't know. That you see through a glass darkly. When the child finally comes to her heavenly father and says, this burden is too heavy to carry. Will will you take it, dad? Will you take it from me? That's the moment when God says, you bet. You bet. I will take that burden. I will carry it for you. But see, the action isn't simply because God is gracious and merciful. Yes, he is gracious and merciful, but he's gracious and merciful for a certain reason. Did you catch it in our passage? He's gracious and merciful for a very specific reason. Look at verse 29. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that. Look at, and, and where does he get this, this, uh, this quotation here? You see in your copy of Scripture, there, there should be some quotation marks there in verse 31. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Well, that comes from Jeremiah 9. And, and we walked through Jeremiah in the summer. So let me refresh our memories about Jeremiah 9, 23. Let me just read the whole, pat, the whole paragraph in its context. And I think this is what Paul is getting at. Paul, is, Paul, remember, at the, he, he's pulling back from the entire theology from Jeremiah. Remember at the beginning of Jeremiah, he says, I have this against you that you have dug cisterns that hold no water instead of coming to me, the fountain of living water. It's when we say, yeah, I've been digging cisterns that don't hold water. And then we come to Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
So how do we fight for unity? How do we stymie the tide of divisions in our church? As our small church that wants to experience the fullness of the Spirit and the beauty of life together as the church, how do we do that? Well, we have to first redefine what is foolish, what is wise, what is weak, and what is strong. We have to first redefine it like God has defined it. That it's not, the foolishness is not leaning on another. Weakness is not trusting in another. And then what do we have to do? We need to remind each other of what God has done for us in his mercy and grace. We speak life to each other, no matter how awkward we may feel. We speak life into each other's circumstances, not tritely. Hey, God's got good plans for you. No, we say, oh, that that is hard. Let me remind you of what God did for me when I waited for him to work on my behalf. Now more than ever, brothers and sisters, you and I need to hear the word of folly spoken over us. That while we were yet weak and foolish, God looked upon you and looked upon me and said, mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in seeing our weakness, you didn't scoff, you didn't leave us on the side of the road to fend for ourselves and seeing our foolish attempts at showing that we were right. You came and you revealed yourself to us in Jesus, that you showed yourself merciful and gracious. And so, Father, we we thank you. We thank you for the gift of salvation, that it is a gift. Not one person in here has earned their salvation. Not one person in this room can ever polish themselves up and, and be wise enough. To put one and one together. But you, in your mercy and grace, have to help us to know that you are good. And we thank you, Father, that in Jesus, you have chosen those who would have their eyes open, Father. And that we, in grace, open our eyes, open our ears. And we ask for you to do that, even for us now, to give us new hearts. Hearts that feel instead of hearts of stone. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.